Good morning. Merry Christmas. It's great to see you guys this morning, and we are here uh, just celebrating this Christmas. Who enjoyed the music? Anybody in just love Christmas music? Let's just thank you guys. Band, you guys did an awesome job. Thank you again this morning, and we are, uh, we're looking forward to singing a lot more Christmas songs together coming up here on Christmas Eve. We're going to have a, an awesome time just as a family, and hopefully you guys will come join us that night at one of those two services, and we will be able to sing out together, hear the Christmas story. We've got some good stuff that's coming that night, a couple special songs, some different things. It'll be, it, I think it'll be a, just a nice, simple Christmas like we've been trying to talk about this whole time. In fact, songs are a big deal, and that's kind of where I was beginning as I was contemplating this this set of, um, of ser- this sermon material this morning, as I was kind of thinking through it, I came to this reality that songs have a deeper power for me than I, than I initially remember. As a high schooler, I came to Christ, and uh, I was living in that time period where people were, um, when you became a Christian, like in the early 90s, maybe the 80s, all the way up to the late 90s, you had one dedicated moment which you took all of your CDs or records or whatever it was, and you threw them in the fire. Anybody do that? Like, just like, goodbye, all Satan's music, you know, whatever it was. You, you were told it was. I didn't do that. Um, I, I, I actually didn't have a lot of CDs or, or tapes actually at the time. And so uh, really for me, it was, uh, it was interesting because my transformation with music began at a band. There was a concert happening on campus at our school at lunchtime. One of the local, uh, one of the kids from my, my choir group was actually in this band. They were singing it and they, were, they had this type of style of music. And as I was listening to it, it was weird. I started just kind of resisting it internally because it was dragging me and it was pulling me back to a place where I had been before in my life, where my life had been in this out-of-control spiral. Some things had been going on, but the music I was listening to and everything had kind of embedded with it. It was kind of like almost bringing me back, like flashback moments as I'd hear certain songs and certain vignettes. And and even today, we'll we'll, we'll play some of those old songs. I'm just like, wow, that takes me back to, oh, that's not a good time period. You know, that kind of that kind of reality. And so I had resisted for a while, slowly we brought it back into my life just because I think differently now and I think about music differently. But for Christmas music, it's especially true. Anybody have that reality? That it's not the song, but it's the person singing the song, right? It's it's that particular CD or that particular person singing it out. Maybe it's for you it's one of the one of the crooners singing one of the Christmas songs or or whoever you find that it's just powerful. We had a time life, I guess, compilation of favorite Christmas music my parents had bought when I was a kid. And they'd have the record player, they put it on, and it would just get the old scratchy sound, that brings you back enough. But the, uh, just with the scratchy sound and the music playing, we found it reproduced many years later in, in, a t- in DVD form, or not DVD form, but in a CD form. We put it in, the first day we put it in, I'm like, I remember this song, I remember how it was played, you know, the Jingle Bell Rocks and all this stuff. I instantly, I'm seven years old, I'm sitting by the Christmas trees, the lights are twinkling, the presents are everywhere, your, your aunt's yelling at you to calm down. You know, that whole thing is present. Anybody there with me when you get in that music? Christmas music is powerful. Music is powerful to take you back. And the beauty of it is that that is human truth. That's a universal situation. In the ancient church, there was a song, and it was a Christmas song, though they would never have called it that. It was a Christ song. And in this fledgling movement, people were excited. They were being inspired by what was going on. The Spirit of God was moving people. And one of these songs came out. It was a hymn they would sing. 
And eventually a man named Paul, he was an apostle, a missionary, who went about starting churches throughout all of Rome and the Roman Empire. And as he came to one of his churches Philippi, that he, or in Philippi that he had founded, they were having some divisions, they were having some troubles, they were having some struggles. And in the middle of his letter he's writing to them, he, I, I think something in him knew that this song strikes a chord. This song says what I wanted to say. It'll be remembered. It's embedded in our memory. And so he inserted a Christ song, a Christmas song, right in the text. One of the oldest songs we have in, the, in all of Christendom is, is right here in the book of Philippians. In fact, if you will, let's open up to this. It's in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 11, and it's actually a Christmas song. And so we're going to kind of unpack this and examine this text this morning. And I think it's, it's interesting because what it's going to do for us, I believe, is show us one final nuance this year that we're going to look at about Christmas and about what this gift that Jesus gave us is and, and how it shifts our way of living. And so if you will, in Philippians chapter 2, we're going to begin in verse 5. I'll go ahead and read this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." And that's pretty much right there is the musical section between five, uh, six and eight. And, and obviously, we don't know what the song was. We don't have the, the, it's more like we're reading the CD jacket, unfortunately. And sometimes it doesn't make as much sense. But what we're seeing here is this, is this song, this hymn to Christ and who he was and what he did. And, and it's interesting because it attacks a problem that I sense in our culture currently. In our current political climate, maybe it's been bothering you, it's Christmas time, maybe you've been just like, I'm ignoring it, I don't even want to think about it, it's Christmas time, you know, they took a break and they're gone, we don't have to worry about them anymore, whatever it is for you, you know, there's a reality that there's a, there's a sense of struggle amongst us, that regardless of who's taken the quote-unquote throne of America, who's ever sitting in the seats of power, I think every American has that adage rolling through their minds, you, you know that adage is, power what? Corrupts. And absolute power corrupts. This is something that is embedded into the heart of the American mind. That the idea is that power is a corrupting agent. That absolute power is the ultimate corrupting agent. And that anybody who has that power and wields that power ought to be feared. And we should be concerned about the person. There's an issue though with that. I have with that, that sentiment. And that is it doesn't fit with God. See, God has the absolute power. God has all the power that has ever been and ever will be. And yet, I think our culture struggles with whether God's been corrupted by that power. Can he just willy-nilly do whatever he wants? Is he just so powerful and, and so warped now? He's just yelling at humanity, worship me. Come on, what's wrong with you people? That's what's going on because that seems to be some of the characterization we get out there. And last week, we talked about the fact that in the, in the manger, in that scene where Jesus has come, that this Jesus is God, God Almighty, who has become a human being. He has stepped into our reality, not just to give us any gift of salvation, but to literally give us the gift of himself so we can have a relationship with God. We could truly know God. And we resisted that a little bit, thinking, well, what is this God like? Who is this like? And yet Jesus examples who God is and what God is like. And one of those things that we realize here in this text is that when Jesus comes, he, he is explaining that God isn't some tyrant, dictator, arrogant in the sky, 
But no, rather what we find is that Christmas God reveals he's humble and he's not power hungry. That he is a God who, who is willing to let go of power and actually humble himself before his own creation. You say, where are you getting this? Right here in this song. Look at verse six with me. If you'll grab, your, grab that Bible and look, look at it. He says, Jesus Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. It's an interesting text, that, that verse seven, um, or verse six. And what he's saying is, look, Jesus is in the form of God. That word form is a terminology that was used with raiment, a way that you dressed. And the ancient culture, the way that you would dress would dictate what level of society you existed on. There was a dress for the slave. There was dress for the average person. Then you started getting into the upper classes where you wore the toga. And as you began in the Roman Empire to wear the toga, then you started adding other raiment on. Like you would have certain lines and colors that you would wear according to what senatorial class you were in. And so as you moved up those, you ultimately you had the Caesar who wore purple. And purple was the, was the designation of deity and power. And so there's these concepts of what you wore represented who you were and how you acted in society. And here what it's saying is that Jesus Christ was wearing the garb. He was dressed as God. He was equal with God. And as we know from John chapter 1, he is God. That Jesus here, with all the power, all the authority, all of the, all of the honor that is due to God is his. And so here's Jesus with, ab- with absolute power. And is he corrupted by it? Is, is he taken in by this power? And it says no. He says he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And this is kind of an odd language. Some of your Bibles may actually say, did not count it robbery. Anybody got that in your King James Version there? It's kind of like what? Jesus was up there sneaking around in the robes of God and he saw opportunity with God to be equal with him and he robbed God of that, you know, no, is that what he's saying? Somehow Jesus is the cosmic theft and stole the opportunity to be God? No. The, uh, we have difficulty translating the actual Greek word. And so you get weird things like robbery from the medieval age and you get grasped or held, or held onto. And that's really the picture. If you can imagine it, why, why it's considered robbery or not considered robbery. A robber would grab something, hold onto it, claiming it as his own. That's the idea. Just possessing it solely and fully for themselves. In other words, clutching to it. Now, when we think of power and you use the term clutching power, you begin to get a better idea of what the text is talking about. What it's saying is that though Jesus had all the power in the world, though he was God himself, he didn't count his equality with his father, he didn't count this equality, this power that he has, something to be held onto, to be clutched, but something to be released. That's the idea going on here. And so it goes on in verse seven, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of, of men. So this is the glory of Christmas. Now the God of the universe, the God who has all power, the God who is eternally powerful, who could accidentally hiccup and all of us be gone. You know, that God, not really. He's even more powerful than that. He can not hiccup. The, <laughs> that God who has all this power didn't think of it as something to grab onto and go, it's mine, all mine. You can't have any of it. I'm not going to let go. It's mine. No, he said, you know what? I'm going to let go. He came as a baby in a manger. Think about that. 
God isn't upstairs being some arrogant, corrupted, self-proud individual sitting up there going, I've got this, I'm amazing, and you all should know it. (laughs) No, he humbles himself and becomes a baby in a manger. There was a baby in that manger. And that baby was a real baby who had to learn from humans who had to be trained to walk and talk and live in the Jewish culture. This Jesus humbled himself and became that baby in that manger. God isn't up there as we called him last week, Santa Claus God, sitting up there going, humans are so cute, naughty, nice, we'll give presents to everyone. That's not the God of the Bible. And when a nuclear explosion happens, he doesn't go, Ho, ho, ho. Hmm. No, he, he's not so aloof, floating in the heavens, distressed about human sin, messed up about what's going on, going, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. No. He's not too busy to deal with your messed up kids. He's not too aloof to deal with the, the problems in your job, the situation in your marriage. He hasn't turned a blind eye to your financial trouble. No, what God did was he humbled himself. And we know this because there's a baby in the manger. And he was willing to let go and be a baby in that manger. See, Jesus didn't even stop there. He didn't even stop at letting go of his power. He, he, he took the next step down. It would be one thing if Jesus just became a human, but he became, you know, a king human. Because what would we do in our political nonsense that that we all know as Americans? We'd show up on earth, and we'd show up as a very powerful politician or king, and we would step in because we're God. You know everything. You've got the angels at your, you know, if you want a latte, you just send Gabriel down and go get you something. You know, you're God. You got it all figured out. You don't have any lack of knowledge. You have no concern with a problem because you can figure it out like that. And so wouldn't you expect God to show up as a great king or a a great prince or a great politician and say, listen, stupid humans, I know how this works. You're all too dumb to figure it out right now. This is what we're going to do. Now, that's maybe how we as politicians work things out. But God in heaven didn't, didn't do that. He came down and he showed up after releasing this, becoming human. He didn't let go of any of his godhood. He was just God in a human form. Then he humbles himself one step further and he becomes a servant. Now, it'd be one thing if you're hosting at your house, you have everybody come over and, and, you're, and you've, you've bought the food and stuff. It'd be another thing if you literally dressed in a nice suit stood up nice and upright with a tray in your hand and walked around to your family all day long and said, would you like an hors d'oeuvre? Would you like a, would you like a, would you like a drink? Can I refresh in your beverage, sir? And, and people are like, stop it. This is a Christmas party. Calm down. But all you do is you, you take the dishes, you wash them all, you just serve your entire family all day long. All your kids are sitting there in their little butler suits and stuff. No, that would be, that's not what we do. You know, Bill Gates, with all of his money and all of his stuff, doesn't just one day suddenly sell everything, turn around, and go sell himself as a slave in the Arab block. You don't do that when you got money and power and prestige. And yet Jesus, when he shows up at the top of his game, he's just come into Jerusalem. He's 33 years old, prime of his life, 
looking around. Everybody's yelled out, Hosanna to the son of David. Here's the king. He's brought a guy back from the dead and everybody's talking about it. They're all freaking out about this. Jesus is the Messiah. The Pharisees are ticked. He's been teaching excellently in the temple. Everybody's listening to him. Everybody's excited. You think the Last Supper, he's sitting down. It's Passover. What's Passover all about? It's when the Jews were released. It's when everybody got free from Egypt. He's going to rise up and be king. And instead of standing up, putting a crown on his head and saying, I am your king, you 12 disciples, follow me. He puts on the garments of a slave. Strips down to a cloth, walks over to his most intimate friends, and takes their filth ridden feet full of feces and gunk from the road that they walked on and starts washing them off. This is the God of the universe we're talking about. He's not so tripping on himself that he's willing to serve. He's willing to give the betterment for other people. He's willing to put on the raiment of the slave. But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And it goes even further. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What an odd thing. Uh, when I was uh, in high school and you know, going into college, my youth group used to talk, my, my youth pastor used to talk about um, Ted Bundy because apparently he had, I think it was him, and he was a horrible serial killer who'd apparently given his life to Christ or something, and this testimony had been done and all this stuff. It's a big, big deal. And, you know, I say a name like that, or I say a name of some Jeffrey Dahmer or something like that. And people's faces do weird things in crowds. Because you don't know I'm looking at you. You're just like, you're like, oh, who's staring over there? No, I still see you. No, it's like. <laughs> and people's faces go like, you get people cross their arms, yeah, that guy. Or women go like, I don't even mention that name. Almost like you want to spit on the carpet. Please don't do that. But the idea is simply that we're so upset, so angry by the idea of the serial killer. The person who would take into his hands wantonly destroying human lives. That even the most ardent anti-death penalty person oftentimes will look at the serial killer and go, well, yeah, then there's them. It's the most vile kind of human being that needs to be taken away and put to death. The ancient world thought very similarly. Their lines were just different. They were a different culture than us. And so if you were somebody who's going to rise up against your own government, what you were actually saying was, I, I want everybody else to go to hell and all my society can go to hell because you know what? What I think is best and all the ancients are wrong and everything we've done is wrong, I'm right and I'm going to prove it. And that's what a rebel was. They were somebody who literally didn't care if they messed up the fabric of society and destroyed everybody's life. And that's why when the Romans would find a rebel... They'd consider them one of the most vile people they could possibly imagine because they ignored ancient culture. They ignored all the knowledge they had had. They'd consider them worse than a barbarian and they would crucify them. In fact, even the Bible had a terminology for people who were hung on trees. It says they were cursed by God. 
And so here is Jesus. Not only did he come as a baby in that manger, but knowing that his destiny was born to a cross, a curse, to be one of the most vile individuals in the mind of humanity. Still, he was willing to humble himself because there was a baby in that manger, guys. All power to being one of the most vile people imaginable in a society? Willing to pay the cost of being crucified, one of the most excruciating, horrible deaths possible in the ancient world, if not the worst. In spite of all this, God is not an arrogant, megalomaniac, hoarding power to himself. Sure, there may be concepts of God out there like that, maybe even promoted in certain churches. But according to the text that we're reading, as we read about the God of the Bible, the God of the Bible was willing to let all that go, relate to humanity, humble himself even further, to the point of death, even death in the most vile form. This is what Jesus brought to us at Christmas. Not just, not just a child, but this baby with a destiny to serve humanity, to bear their sins, and to take upon himself our sufferings that we might be saved. Not to stand aloof in the heavens and ignore, but to step into the problem, walk through the pain and suffering, experience it along with us, that he may look at us and say, I am here, I love you, I am not ignoring you. What, a, what, a, what an amazing picture, Amen. And so it blows me away then, and yet it challenges me, because how should we respond to this? The response, the response is simply this. We are to humble ourselves as Christ humbled himself. Now, you may be here this morning, and you're not a Christian. You, you don't follow Jesus. You, you, you know about him. You, you're int- this, is, this is all maybe new to you or old to you. I don't know, but... Um, this model is actually something we all emulate, Christian or not, in this room. You can't help it. It's, a part, it's written into our hearts. It's funny because this is the very model of, of, of abandoning power to where something must be, must be given and related to, to where we must humble ourselves at, the, at a cost of ourselves for success and beauty for the other to happen. This is the very storyline of Frozen, by the way. Right? This is the very storyline of the Lord of the Rings. Where self-sacrifice is given, the burden is laid on one person so far that they must go to even to the point of death themselves. This is the very story of Narnia. This is the very story of every love story, every movie we see, because this is the ultimate glory of the human life expressed in Jesus Christ. By God, calling us. You want to know why we think Gandhi's great? Even though he wasn't a Christian, he gave up his power to turn and humble himself so that he would even self-sacrifice at great cost for his own country, for a betterment of other people. And we go, that is a man who's amazing, but he's only imaging Jesus Christ. We are fascinated in all of our story and every plot line of every book and every people group of this very story of releasing power, turning and humbling and relating and paying the great cost for the betterment of another. 
How should we respond but to humble ourselves, to live this very model that our Lord Jesus Christ lived to save us? And so you stand there, and I'll be honest, this is where I'm at right now. My, my family, I got four kids. And right there I should express a, oh, you know, because that can be rough, man. Anybody's got four kids in here, say amen to me. There we are right there. If you got five kids, you say, I say, oh, man, you know. You know it's, it, it, lots of kids is not a bad thing, but it doesn't make it easy. Three kids was hard for my parents. Two kids is hard for some of us. Kids are hard. They're an inconvenience. <laughs> Let's just be honest. I want to live my life. <laughs> All right, I can't. You know, you've got, you've, you're, you're, you've got to care for someone. You've got to literally let go of your life to humble yourself, to care for another, even at great cost at times, that they may live well. This is very, the very call of a parent. It's the very call of the grandparent. This is the very call in the middle of my struggle as I'm looking at my kids and I got kids who are yelling and screaming at each other and then yelling and screaming at me and I'm going, yelling and screaming at them. Anybody else there with me? Thank you, Lord. You're like, let's start a group therapy session right now because I need this. Guys, we, we, we all have this, this tension with our children because they're other people and they're just as messed up as us and but I realize it's when I'm not living out the, with the life of Christ, when I'm not walking this humble road, when I'm not doing what Jesus did, when I'm standing there and I've got the right to judge my kids because I'm dead, and I've got the right to lay down the law because I'm dead, and you better listen to me because I've got a louder voice and I'm three times bigger than you, kid. You know, this is going to happen. Instead of going, you know what? When God was an infinite times bigger than me, much louder voice, much more powerful, very right in his judgment, and very capable of condemning me to hell, he decided, I'm going to come and be a baby in a manger. And sometimes what I have to do is turn away from my big bad self, as arrogant big daddy, and turn around and go, look him in the eye. Now some of your kids are more like this at this point. But I get it. Get on a stool, look them in the eye. You get down in their world. You listen in humility. You try your best you can. Doesn't mean you let go of your authority. Jesus never did that. But you listen. And out of what is good, you love them in the right direction. You guide them. You draw that boundary. You draw that line. You pay whatever cost it takes out of your love for them. Sometimes that means you've got to let them suffer consequences. Sometimes that means you've got to bear consequences yourself. But whatever it is, it's, it's the same picture. Think about your marriage for a minute if you're married. How often it works so well when we hold on to our own ideas and our own ways and we know what's right and dang it, I'm cool and you're wrong and I don't know what's, you're insufferable and you're a jerk and all that stuff goes on. And none of us have taken the moment to step back from our bad selves, look at ourselves and say, you know what, Christ was willing to humble himself when he had all that right and turn and look in the eye and listen and humble ourselves before each other. That's what makes marriages work. Take a minute, focus on each other and listen. To abandon all judgment, thoughts that were right. 
to consider the other, to hope for the best for them, to ponder that their ways may have good ideas, and to come to reconciliation, paying even the cost that it might be of your pride, of whatever it is that you are willing to lay it down for the other. That is the model that we're given. Isn't that what Jesus, isn't that what Paul will write later when he tells husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, which means serve her in such a manner that you'd be willing to pay great costs and sacrifice on behalf of the other. And wives, you're to submit to your husbands as the church submits to Christ, which means that we'd be willing to let go of our bad selves and turn and maybe consider our husbands are an idiot sometimes and have some good directions. That's not a personal story for me, I'm just saying. (laughs) The point is simply that this is the same picture. Deny yourself, humble oneself before the other, to listen, to learn, to grow, to care, even at great cost. This works in your work environment. This works with your neighbors. This is the path of reconciliation that is given to us, and it's been proven that it works because there was a baby in that manger, and God doesn't make mistakes. And when you see that baby in that manger, it is a great reminder that we've been given a path of life and humility that opens our souls to bind together and not push each other out because we think we all got that in a bag of chips and our judgment's ready to go. But he's God, Greg. I mean, come on. Jesus, the baby in the manger, is deity. Of course he can do this. Well, let's take a minute here. He is a baby in the manger. He is a human being with the same passions and drives minus the sin. And here Jesus is at 33 after he's just donned the robes of, suffer, of, of humility and he's in a garden with all his buddies sleeping around him begging his father one thing, if there's any other way than the cross for us to do this, can you take this cup away from me? And he's sweating blood and he's stressed out of his mind as he's about to give himself away in sacrifice. No, this wasn't easy for Jesus. Of course it's not easy. We've all done the easy thing all the time, amen? How'd that work out for us? Easy often is wrong. We're not talking about easy. We're talking about right. What Christ has called us to is the right way of living, which is not the easiest way of living. And the call of the baby in the manger oftentimes is a call for courage. It's a call to man up or woman up and stop whining about the suffering of this world because it's here to stay until Christ returns. And if we emulate this vision of what he's given us in our music, in our songs, in our movies, in all that we do, then why in the world are we not wanting to live it as Christians? No, it's not easy. And I just need to tell you, if you're not a Christian, it's even more difficult for you. And here's why. Because the day you turn away from yourself to go humble yourself and help somebody out, you're going to learn a lot about yourself. See, humility, another way of defining that is seeing yourself rightly. And one day you're going to wake up to see yourself rightly and you're going to see a lot of stuff you don't like about yourself. And there's, you're going to try to change those things. You're going to move to change those things. You're going to try different things. But the bottom line is you can't. Because we're sinful. 
That's why Jesus came. Because on that cross, later in his life, he would bear our sins on himself. To pay for that sin, to deal with that sin that we can't deal with. And right there is the solution. It's not something we do. It's not something we are. It's something God does on our behalf. Now, what's beautiful about that is that then we're not alone. He comes and stops being the God in the heavens. He becomes the God in our lives, walks with us, dwells with us. And so if you're a Christian, to live this life, you're not, it's not easy, but you're not doing it by yourself. Christ guides you. He walks with you. He leads you. He challenges you. He moves you. He teaches you. It's this guidance that we have. And so no, you're not alone. You're not alone. But is it worth it? I mean, is it really worth it? I think what we discover is this, that as we live a humble life, we find that God does indeed make it worth it. Go ahead. Come on now. I've got a dead thing. So let me show you. Verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, meaning Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here in this pattern, Jesus is willing to give up all the absolute power, make himself a human, relate with us, humble himself to the point of serving others for our betterment, and even to pay the greatest cost on the cross. He's willing to do all that for what purpose? So he can have a blackout. No, I'm just kidding. For what purpose? To glorify his father. To show what God was like. To save humanity. To bear our sins so we may glorify the father. And so look carefully. What he is saying is those who live this pattern live out a pattern in which God exalts the person. There's a, there's a transformation, a result that comes out of this. Now, I believe that this result is resurrection. I believe when this is lived out, good things happen. Reconciliation can occur. Things like this happen. But ultimately what will occur, and not always, is that this healing that occurs will ultimately will be done in eternity. Now, always that will happen, but not always on earth. Hear me. You may dive in, suffer, and suffer, and suffer, and suffer. But you may not see the result. It's not promised us to always see the result. But in eternity, there is a promise that all things will be made right through Christ. There is the promise that the relational tension will be gone. There's the promise that the sin will be erased. There is a promise that the life will be resurrected. And in that time, we will be exalted with Christ. And his great name that he has will wash over on us. There will be a connection. You see, Scripture talks about it this way. They call it a treasure. You ever wondered what that was? You do good on earth and he lays up treasure in heaven. I still wonder what that is. You know, we got the idea of crowns. We're going to take those crowns. We're going to throw them at Jesus. You know, that thing. But whatever it is, somehow, God wants, not only has he given us our salvation, he blesses us with that. Then he goes, on top of that, I'm going to give you a glot of good things in eternity because you're willing to walk my path. That blows me away. How is that going to, I don't get that God wants to keep pouring out blessings on you and me, keep pouring out grace on you and me as he does this, even though he's given it all to us in the first place. But that's his nature. 
The baby in the manger is a giving God who's given us salvation and given us grace and given us these gifts and given us this reconciliation. Here's how sure I am of this. A few, four years ago, my mom died um, of cancer. One of the worst moments of my life, at the same time my, son was, my, my last son was being born. And I, I can remember after getting through those initial moments, there was, there was a lot of tension we were working through as a family. My mom and my, my, my dad and all this stuff was going on. And we, as we were working, I never got a chance to really sit down and just express, Mom, what is going on here? I want to I forgive you. I want to know that you've forgiven me. I want this stuff to be right. And she never was able to come out of the propofol that they had put her under because of what had gone on in her last few hours of life. And I didn't get to be there. I just wanted to hear her last word. And I wasn't there, but she died, and I just kind of rolled in uh, about 20 minutes later. And again, after the initial shock of all that and the pain that that brought me through, I came to this place where I, I started pondering all the trouble that had existed prior to her death. And it dawned on me, and the Lord just started ministering to me about the fact that, you know what? All of the tension, all of the trouble is understood by her now. She sees all her faults perfectly. She saw all my faults perfectly. All my family's faults, all, all, all of it together perfectly. And it doesn't bug her anymore. It's all old hat. Because when she's standing before that creator, everything's dealt with because of Jesus Christ. What Jesus had done in my mom's life had transformed her. And now at that point, with all the sin removed and clarity brought to the equation, she wasn't holding anything against me. And I don't hold anything against her. Neither does my family. And I fully expect the day in the resurrection or the day that I see her when I step into eternity to be able to just unite with her without any sin or need for apology or anything else left. Because Christ will have taken care of it. See, his journey to that manger and then to the cross and then through the resurrection and out transforms us so that there should be no dangers amongst each other. There will be sin, but when he returns, it will be cleaned away. We'll have reconciliation, full and complete. And that's that right there is why I want to emulate that. If there's even an ounce of that reconciliation that comes out of me living like Christ, why wouldn't we do it? There's even an ounce of knowledge of living a little bit of heaven on earth because we're willing to pay the cost for a while. Why wouldn't we do it? And Jesus knew this cost and still there was a baby in that manger. And this reminds you and it reminds me that this is the way, the pattern that we're called to live. Not easy, but right and good. And I pray God would help walk you in that way in all of your life as you follow him. Would you bow your heads with me? This morning you may be in this room and you've, you're a Christian and you've realized that what Christ has done for you in his humility is you know, something that maybe you're not emulating. You're, you're like me. You're kind of seeing a lot of spots that we could, we could adjust. I just ask that God would give you his grace this Christmas season and that his spirit would lead you 
and strengthen you in this time. Just know he's not done with you yet. And he's still, he's still transforming us. But for others of you in this room, you may not know, you may not be a follower of Jesus Christ. And I want to encourage you to be one. Because what Jesus did is he gave you this model. He loved you with a great love by giving up this entire power and all this stuff so that he would come to this earth to bear your sin on the cross if you would trust him. That on the cross, he was willing to to take the mess and the guilt and the shame and all that junk that's inside of us and he was willing to put it there so we wouldn't have to suffer hell in eternity. That's why he humbled himself and went on the cross. I'm gonna give you an opportunity then to accept that. See, you can't go to church enough times to, to get yourself right with God. There's not a bunch of things that you can line up. Not enough prayers, not enough sacrifices that can get you right with God. There's only one sacrifice that God's ever given that pays for what you need, and that is Jesus Christ. So he offers you an exchange to take all your sin away from you and give you all his righteousness just by trusting that Jesus did this on the cross for you. So maybe you need to begin your journey of following Jesus by trusting that he's taken your sins, that he's forgiven you. And he's made this right relationship with God available to you. If this morning you would like to receive that gift, no matter where you're at, then let me know. Just put your hand up. I want to pray with you and walk you through a prayer and give you an opportunity to say, yes, that's me. I want to receive the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. I want to begin that journey of living with God. If that's where you're at this morning, just begin right here by talking to God and, and let him know the, those, th- those sins, those things you've done wrong that you've caused other people and just lay them before him. Go ahead and tell him about those now. When you're done with that, you'll turn and you're going to do something called repent. You turn away from your sin. You turn to God. Ask him to put your sins on Christ. Let God know that you trust that Jesus has taken your sins and forgiven you. Let him know that you trust that Jesus rose from the dead and then And ask him to make you new. And ask him to come into your life to lead it. All the way through the rest of your life and all the way into heaven. God, for those in this room who are praying that prayer, I ask that you hear them and you answer. In Jesus' name. Amen.